Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. No matter what time of year you visit, you'll find exciting events to make your vacation more epic. In the spring, experience Universal's Mardi Gras, Florida's biggest party. Enjoy parades each night, and on select nights, you can catch some of the biggest names in music live in concert. In the fall, nightmares rule the darkness at Universal Orlando's Halloween Horror Nights, where houses drawn from the greatest horror stories chill the bravest souls. Then put a little mischief in your merry when Universal Orlando unwraps a resort-wide celebration. You've never had a holiday like this. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. Here's the thing. I can't tell you exactly what it is that we're going to do, but we're going to do something that's probably adult content. I can't tell you right now because we record this at the top of the thing, but we're going to do it. Just take my <laughs> word for it. If that's an issue for you. Check out Recapables Westworld, which has no adult content in it whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. So... If you don't yet know why people have been walking around saying it's Leviosa. Leviosa. Not Leviosa. Since 2001. Jesus. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now bitch mode. What happened to you know who? Well, some say he died. Codswallop, in my opinion. Nope. I reckon he's out there still. Too tired to carry on. But one thing's absolutely certain. Something about you stumped him that night. That's why you're famous. That's why everybody knows your name. You're the boy who lived. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website, Harry. What a phenomenal online media outlet, Harry. Hey, good. <laughs> Joining me today. Yes. <laughs> now that he has literally murdered a dude with his bare hands. He murdered him all the way to death. <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer and your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal, together, we'll do extraordinary things because it's hot. But not the hottest, which means that binge mode Harry Potter, where we'll explore every facet of the Harry Potter universe, is finally underway. Yes. Be you bishop or rook or knight. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points and stars for binge mode. Please feel free to also follow us on Twitter at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group which is only for Binge Mode fans, and which is a great place to discuss the latest house team roster compositions and put up screenshots of your bookshelf. Love those bookshelf threads. Yeah. On yesterday's episode of Binge Mode Harry Potter, we wrapped our four-episode Sorcerer's Stone book discussion by exploring how courage defines the three mm. closing chapters of that novel. And on today's episode, we are diving deep. Deep. Into the 2001 film adaptation. Yeah. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge mode, as always. While the Sorcerer's Stone movie is today's primary focus, we will be going deep on details from 
all seven books, all eight films, and the wider Potter-verse, taking the entire series into account from the moment we open our letters. Yes. Also, keep in mind, if you've been listening to our book podcast, we're talking about plot in the movie that we have obviously covered yes. in those book podcasts. So some of these discussion points, some lines of dialogue, some thematic interpretations will feel familiar, but we are also trying to put a new spin on this, assess the movie through a lens specific to it. So push your cart straight toward that barrier. Best to run if you're nervous. That's right. Because it's time to head to the wizarding world. <laughs> Mel, I can teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. I can tell you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death. But first, I need to offer up a brief, and even briefer than usual, refresher on the plot of Sorcerer's Stone, the movie, by climbing aboard the Hogwarts Express. One day, Harry Potter, a young orphan living with his aunt and uncle in suburban England, discovers that he is, in fact, a wizard. And he's been invited to attend Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry to hone his craft. There, he discovers the truth about his past, forges friendships that will last a lifetime, and sets off on the fateful course that will determine not only the fate of his life, but the fate of the wizarding world. Jason. Hi. This podcast will be famous. That's right. There won't be a child in our world who doesn't know its name. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of the Sorcerer's Stone movie is expectations. Let's talk about the expectations for this film as an adaption of an existing property. You talking about that sweet, sweet IP? That sweet, sweet IP. God, I think it's you know it's useful Gods, to I miss the Gods. IP. Gods, the IP was strong. I think it's useful to recall that. In 1996, the year before Harry Potter was released, was kind of a strange time in IP. Bloomsbury, the publishing house that released Harry Potter, their children's lit division, did $1.2 million in sales in 1996. By spring of 1999, so two years after the publication of Harry Potter, they sold 763,000 Harry Potter books. And by the mid-aughts, the company was raking in some $171 million a year. So let's think back to pop culture in the mid to late 90s. When it seemed like the era of IP capable of captivating a world audience was exhausted, if not over. Star Wars had been dormant since 1983 with the release of Return of the Jedi, the final film in the original trilogy. The prequels were about two years out from starting to disappoint fans the world over. The comic book industry... I don't like sand. I don't like sand. The comic book industry, of course, had decades of unmined storylines and characters who have yet to be shown in the, on the silver screen in full bloom. But aside from Batman and the Superman franchise, which ended in 1987, comics characters would remain largely untapped for years until semi-recently, right? And anyway, we're talking about new IP. Comics were not new IP. This is old stuff, right? That's what made Harry so special. And that's why producer David Heyman spent two years negotiating the film rights and why J.K. had leveraged to demand really an unusual amount of creative control yeah. over these movies, Rowling's characters and story were fresh, and they tapped into a generation's simmering desire for magic and imagination, a fantasy story that was all their own. This freshness, the newness of the story, the youthfulness of the characters would lead naturally to the charge, and the one that still sticks, that Harry Potter 
is merely a children's story. I don't think we need to refute it to this audience, but we will refute that in time. Yet there was no doubt that the story was popular beyond all expectations, right? Beyond the expectations of Bloomsbury, Scholastic, and Warner Brothers. Ironically, though, this created expectations for the films, which perhaps they would never actually be able to live up to. Some key dates can sort of help us frame, because amazingly, this is already quite a long time ago. It's wild to think about it. We think of Harry as being like the story of our generation, a new thing, fresh, and it's been around for 20 years. You know, last year was the 20-year anniversary of the Philosopher's Stone's publication in Europe, June 26, 1997, rebranded as the Sorcerer's Stone, and that book was published in the States. In 98, so 20 years ago from when Sorcerer's Stone hit our shores, the Sorcerer's Stone movie was released in November of 2001. This is all already so long ago, but because it's so long ago, it's worth remembering how much was happening in a really concentrated span of time. From 97 to 2001, I mean, that is nothing, nothing to go from unknown author getting her first book published to worldwide galleon generating film franchise machine. When the first movie came out, JKR had already published the first four books in the series. Gobble to Fire came out in 2000. So that's also really interesting to think about. That pivot point in the series is when the movies started actually getting made. So... The people making the films, Warner Brothers, basically knew enough to understand already that they had a very special story on their hands and that this was immensely popular and also did not know how the story was going to go. And imagine, you know, we don't need to imagine. Look at the other favorite story of ours, A Song of Ice and Fire. Look at George R. R. Martin. When Sometimes when someone starts adapting your story as you are still (laughs) working on it, that can be a crippling thing. But she finished the books, they finished the movies, and it was and is and remains a global phenomenon. People were already so into the books by the time the movies dropped that readers who were fans had very real, very strongly held convictions about how the movies should go and what they expected from the adaptation. But because the series was so new on the literary side as well, there was also this whole slew of fans out there who didn't know anything about this. For a lot of people, the movies were the entryway into the world. And so it's also interesting to think about, you know, the movies are rightly often knocked for not being... Faithful adaptations for some of the changes that they make. The earlier films, the two Chris Columbus movies, Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets, are inarguably the most faithful adaptations. Now, part of that is just the sheer fact of it being easier to adapt a shorter book than a longer book. There's just less to deal with there. Yeah. But even though it wasn't until the third movie, Prisoner of Azkaban, when these movies started to elevate artistically and people started to take the films as standalone creations more seriously— It's okay and maybe even good that the first two were, quote, like, less good, right, air quotes, as movies because they were more faithful adaptations, which was a great way to sort of find that balancing act. Keep the people who already love the books happy. Show them that you could be a trusted steward to handle this story and also help bring in all these new people. What about the expectations for the character within this movie? Right away from the opening scene, we are really trained to expect that Harry will never get to lead an ordinary life. We don't yet know anything really specific about 
anyone on screen. You know, all we know about Dumbledore is that he has a dope beard in a very uh, specific sartorial sense. We don't yet know anything about McGonagall other than that she can transform into a cat. And we don't really know anything about Hagrid other than that he is massive and seems really sweet and is in possession of both a flying motorbike and Dumbledore's Pretty cool. Very cool. There's... Talk of rumors, you know, both good rumors and bad rumors. There's talk of how awful the family that Harry's about to be placed with seems, but it's all allusions to something that we can't fully see or understand. It's hints. It's whispers. The only certainty at this moment at the beginning of the film is that Harry is at the center of something massive, something that will define the rest of his life. McGonagall says, this boy will be famous. There won't be a child in our world who doesn't know his name. And Dumbledore says, exactly. He's far better off growing up away from that until he is ready. Right away, we expect that there's something that he needs to be ready for. And even here at the beginning, drop blind into the midst of a story that feels simultaneously as if it's ending and beginning, what we see plays with our expectations. This is ancient imagery, right? And one would not need to be familiar with the characters and the settings, understand that they're suggestive of some sort of magical setup. So when you combine that with the setting, nondescript suburban neighborhood, we're being primed for one of the story's primary themes, both the film and the books, that magic exists within and throughout the everyday world, the world you see all the time. The camera zooms in on baby Harry and his... Signature lightning bolt scar. And the Harry we then see when the camera zooms back 10 years later, he's not expecting anything other than another day of misery at Fort Privet Drive, where he lives with his neglectful aunt and uncle Petunia and Vernon Dursley and their horrid son. Tough look for my guy. Dudley. (laughs) Dudley. (laughs) Wake up, Potter! We're going to the zoo! 36, but last year... Awful young man. What a dick. When we read and we imagine Harry's cupboard, it's painful enough. But something about actually seeing this microscopic space in which he lives as his aunt bangs on the door and his cousin thunders on the stairs overhead is utterly heartbreaking. And the very street on which the Dursleys live is a cookie-cutter temple to fitting in. This isn't the kind of home where a boy expects to find out that he's special. One thing that Harry can expect, we quickly realize, Vernon's wrath. When the family sets off for the zoo on Dudley's birthday, shouts to all you Piers fans out there who just wanted to see him in the movie and didn't get it. We're sorry. Vernon warns Harry not to bring about any, quote, funny business. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. Harry, though Harry does not yet know he's a wizard, he already understands keenly that his caretakers loathe anything unusual. And yet, of course, Harry is not a usual boy. So when Vernon and Dudley are banging on the snake's glass at the zoo and then walk away disappointed by their own boredom, Harry shares a lament with the snake. Quote, he doesn't understand what it's like lying there day after day. Harry is identifying with this creature. And at this point in the story, the fact that he's identifying with a snake has nothing to do with speaking parcel tongue mm-hmm. or having a bit of Slytherin's air inside of him. It is all about feeling a sense of fellowship with something else that is caged with another creature who has come to expect nothing but isolation and despair. It's interesting to regard the Dursleys because I thought, and I don't think it's any secret that the film adaptions are up and down if you're familiar with the books. There's things that largely come off slightly more shallow than they did in the books. The Dursleys are incredibly effective Mm -hmm. as a framing device in the movies. Like, you don't need to know much 
all you need to do is see them to go, oh, man. Right. These people are extremely, extremely tough. Yeah, just the representation for sort of the prison that yeah. his first 11, well, 10 years with them of life have been is just, it's instantaneous. You see yeah. it in the beige that yeah. their house is decorated in, the way that they speak, the way that they belittle him and yeah. and literally shunt him aside where you would keep dirty boots. Yeah, to see that space, even without the spiders, right? To see it is to be slightly taken aback by it. Like, wow, this is really how you live? It's tough. So the initial letter— Tough stuff. Tough stuff. <laughs> the first letter that arrives for Harry is the first thing in his life with the Dursleys that's really penetrated that sense of cloistered isolation that lets Harry know that there's people outside of this very, very, very tiny sphere of people that understand that he's even alive. The envelope has Harry's name on it, handwritten, which— imparts a certain intimacy. Right. There's uh, a person behind There's this. a person who knows who he is, who wrote his name on a letter. It is addressed to his cupboard, which is even more intimate. But there's also an ambiguity. Someone wants to communicate with Harry. Who? And for the first time in his life, he has to wonder, who knows that I'm alive and what do they want? Even if it had just been one letter, one attempt, that initial attempt, Harry would have always wondered. Imagine that. That's actually fascinating to think about. Imagine if it was the one letter and that he had never been able to open it. Imagine that life. But of course, the letters don't stop, which is part of what is so compelling about the early part of the story, this idea that there is a path for you and it will find you no matter what you do and no matter what obstacles are in your path. So that seed of curiosity transforms into this kind of like tidal wave of expectation Whatever this is, is not going to stop until Harry opens the letters. Even when there's 5,000 letters <laughs> swirling around in the hallway and Harry can, <laughs> Harry, the most gifted seeker in a generation, cannot even grab one of these. Even at that, no matter what, no matter how far they go, no matter how far they travel away from this, that destiny will find them. Amid the dissonance of Harry at once being, on the one hand, so lonely that he ushers in his own 11th birthday by drawing a cake and candles into the dirt. That's so sad. On the ground of the hut on the rock in the sea. Just devastatingly yeah. sad. And then on the other side of that dissonance, Harry is sure for the first time in his life that someone gives a damn about him. Yeah. And in that moment of dissonance, Hagrid arrives. And with him, a homemade birthday cake. Yeah. Baked it myself, words and all. Something even more delicious than Hagrid's cake. The truth. It is time for Harry to get some answers. Hagrid says, of course, you'll know all about Hogwarts. And Harry says, sorry, no. Of course, no. you know all about Hogwarts. <laughs> sorry, no. No? Blimey, Harry. Can you ever wonder where your mom and dad learned it all? Learned what? You're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> you know, something else that was very effective is Petunia Dursley's speech about her family is so acid. There's so much resentment there. It's a wonderful performance and takes you into her character in a way that we don't really get a window into the other Dursleys. There's something so incredible about this idea of not being special in contrast to somebody in your family who is. And the way that kind of acid and disappointment builds up to create something fantastically unpleasant. My perfect sister being who she was. Oh, my mother and father was so proud the day she got her letter. 
that really hit me. That's another thing that I was like, that is good. That it was actually very, very good. The way she chokes out the word yes. freak. Yeah. And uh, it's really effectively portrayed in the movie. It's one of the things I've always thought was underratedly brilliant in yeah. the book is that it's, you know, on one level meant to play as bigotry right. and judgment, but you, there's, a sadness. there's only so much emotion behind something like that if it's something that you want and well, that you long for. It. And that th- comes through in a way that always makes you actually yes. want to learn more about Petunia. It's the thing that we always say. The best villains are the ones who think they're heroes, right? This lets you know, it gives you that window into her character and why she treats this kid the way she does. Listen, there's no excuse for it, but at the same time, this is a heartbroken person whose parents clearly never treated her with the same regard as they treated her sister. Right. And we can use Petunia as an effective, you know, stand-in to consider this idea. How many children would hear those words from Hagrid and immediately think, of course, yes, this is right. Hearing this is right. I'm different. I'm special. I'm chosen. You know, we will see much later that Tom Riddle has just that reaction, but not Harry, not our Harry. Forming expectations for himself does not come naturally for him. Quite the opposite. He is sure that what Hagrid is telling him is a mistake. And ironically, the Dursleys are actually key in helping Harry come to accept this because in their hatred and in their small-mindedness, they reveal that only truth can be behind the way they are conducting themselves and the things that they are saying. They reveal that they've been keeping this a secret for years and that they swore when they took him in they would put a stop to this nonsense. So what does it mean to be a wizard? To be a wizard, Harry! Harry's expectations about what this could mean start to come together as he learns about his parents, really for the first time. What does he learn? They did not die in a car crash. So this would be earth-shaking information for an 11-year-old child, right? This is what he believed for as long as he lived, what his aunt and uncle had told him, his only relatives in the world would have told him this. As Mal said, the way Aunt Petunia hisses freak lets him know the way they were viewed by their own blood. Hagrid's casual use of the word muggle also helps Harry to understand that this wizarding world that he's about to enter has its own culture. There's a social aspect and a community there that defines itself in contrast to other communities and the one he knows natively. The way Hagrid shouts, this boy's had his name down ever since he were born, helps Harry process that this is in his blood. This is his destiny. This is something that has been waiting for him. This is his birthright. And based on the reverence that Hagrid treats him with and the way Hagrid talks about Dumbledore and defends Dumbledore's honor when Vernon slights him, Harry starts to form an expectation of Dumbledore as a person who, when you think about it, like a half giant comes and knocks in your door. This is an extremely impressive character. And then this character who just bent a shotgun barrel so that it pointed up at the ceiling is in turn extremely impressed by another individual who we have yet to meet, that would have made an impact on young Harry. And the good news is Dumbledore will never let Harry down, ever, (laughs) ever after that. So everything's fine. (laughs) Harry's awakening truly begins when he and Hagrid head to London to shop for Harry's school supplies. And when Tom, the leaky cauldron barman, spots Harry and says, bless my soul, it's Harry Potter, the entire pub falls silent. Everyone gets up. Everyone comes to shake Harry's hand and welcome him back into the wizarding world. He is greeted like a celebrity, like royalty. Professor Quirrell, notably in the movie, unlike in the books, already wearing his turban at this point and unwilling to make physical contact with Harry, says, 
when talking about the subject that he teaches, Defense Against the Dark Arts. Not that you need it, eh, Potter? What is Harry to make of all this? People yes. know who he is. More than that, they are awed by him. They yeah. have been expecting his return, and they are clearly expecting something of him now that he's back. The mere facts of his identity, of his existence, are a burden for Harry to even try to comprehend. Hagrid says, see, Harry, you're famous. And Harry says, but why am I famous, Hagrid? All those people back there, how is it they know who I am? Not sure I'm the right person to tell you that, Harry. And Harry's— Why are you here, my dude? Yeah. (laughs) Also, like, Hagrid, why is Quirrell acting like this? Like, no one is going to mention what a weirdo he's being? Come on. Harry is distracted for this quest when he enters Diagon Alley for the first time. And what a sight it is. Magical creatures, strange candies, children staring at broomsticks. Uh, The shops are proof, real, real proof that this is not a dream. This is real. And it's real in a way that you can touch, that he can see. There's an entire way of life that's just right there under the surface of the world that he knows. And when Harry asks, wait a second, how am I supposed to pay for this stuff? Good news, my dude. You're rich. (laughs) Always nice. It's always nice to miraculously discover that you are rich. (laughs) Hagrid takes him to Gringotts, the Goblin Bank. And then he says, didn't think your mom and dad would leave you with nothing, did you? Well, how would Harry know? Honestly, how would he know this? You know, only now is he beginning to learn about who his parents really were, about their standing in this community, about the things that they imparted to him. Just the tip of the iceberg about what they actually left him with. And so only now can he form expectations about what it means to be Harry Potter. And though Harry did not previously know that he was a wizard, it is clear that he's always been inherently curious. This is not new. This is just a part of who he is. Because when Hagrid takes Harry to Vault 713 to retrieve a tiny mystery package, what could it be? Best not mention this to anyone, Harry. (laughs) Okay, then don't take a child. Don't show it to me. (laughs) Don't do magic in front of me, and then I won't. You don't have to worry about me repeating any of these things, my guy. (laughs) That plea from Hagrid does nothing to quiet Harry's desire to learn more. Quite the opposite, in fact. It confirms firms in Harry's mind that there's something here worth knowing, and he's not going to be able to shake that feeling. But nothing that takes place during this trip raises Harry's expectations and and indeed whets his appetite to learn about magic than his trip to Ollivander's to purchase his first one and to be selected in turn by his first one, Ollivander says. I wondered when I'd be seeing you, Mr. Potter. He's been waiting for Harry. He's been waiting a long time as this entire world has been waiting for Harry. And we see that Harry is a tough customer to find a wand for. And let me just say one thing. This first (laughs) wand, like the shelves blow open. That's not good. We're not looking for something like that. You got to be able to control the magic. Control. It's not just about power, Voldemort. (laughs) I mean, that was impressive (laughs) to me. I was like, whoa, that looks pretty good. There is no good wand play and evil wand play. There is only power <laughs> and the drawers so the that first, open from it. first two wands are just tearing apart the shop. Ollivander, not even concerned about this. You know, we can do repair or whatever. Yeah. We can do something and just fix clean the whole, the clean up the whole place. <laughs> and he says, I wonder, hmm, hmm, hmm. Selects the wand. Ollivander says, curious, very curious. Sorry, but what's curious? I remember every wand I've ever sold, Mr. Potter. Just so happens that the phoenix whose tail feather resides in your wand gave one other feather, just one. It is curious that you should be destined for this wand 
when its brother gave you that scar. The music kicks in. And who owned that wand? Oh, we do not speak his name. The wand chooses the wizard, Mr. Potter. It's not always clear why, but I think it's clear we can expect great things from you. After all, he who must not be named did great things. Terrible, yes, but great. Haunting. So much to (laughs) unpack here. First of all, the expectations immediately foisted upon him that not only are you famous, we expect you to be great. We expect great things from you. Harry and the viewers are like are starting to understand that there's this threat, a shadowy threat, so terrible that we cannot even talk about him. Though, ostensibly, he is gone. We cannot speak of him. And furthermore... That threat, that unspeakable threat, and young, innocent Harry Potter are connected in ways that we do not understand, and clearly, they do not understand. Even the people in this world don't understand it. Twin wand cores, not an accident. There's an element of destiny here. The wand chooses the wizard, remember. I think it's clear that we can expect great things from you. The expectation there, greatness and destiny. Some kind of path is already laid out for Harry, and where it leads, much danger will await him. You can understand how this would weigh on a young man. That's right. Let's go get something to eat now. What do you think? And so over dinner, Harry uh, brings some of this up, starts to voice some of his doubts. He said, he killed my parents, didn't he? The one who gave me this. This is a hysterical moment here. Darling young little Daniel Radcliffe. You know, Hagrid. I know you do. Well, yeah, Harry, everyone knows. That's the point. Keep up, my guy. First, I know some of this, Harry. This is very important. No, no, we're good. Here's the thing. <laughs> Is that Hagrid after like a few fire whiskeys? No, no, we're good. The thing about like, and this is partly down to the fact that they were so young when they did this movie, Radcliffe and Rupert and Emma. So young. The thing I think the books get at more effectively, one of the things, is that Harry's anger after finding out the circumstances of his parents' death. You know, he explodes at the end of this book when he's like, don't you guys get it? Right. It's Voldemort. This is not about school. This is not about the House Cup. I'm not sure Radcliffe at age whatever was 10, 11 was really capable of that kind of like explosion of fury. But you would understand to find out, yes, there is a man who killed your parents. We don't know where he is. he tried to kill you. He tried to kill you. And he failed. And that's why you're the most famous person in the world. Is he gone? Not sure. Maybe he's still around. You could understand how that would create enormous anger in a person. Yes, and so the response from Hagrid over this uh, just quiet meal is <laughs> a huge expectation setter, as is his explanation about Voldemort's reign. We get this extremely cheesily shot flashback yes. as we, Very bad. <laughs> we hear Hagrid say, Your parents brought against him, but nobody lived once he decided to kill him. Nobody. Not one except you. Me? Voldemort tried to kill... Me? Yes. That ain't no ordinary cut on your forehead, Harry. A mark like that only comes from being touched by a curse and an evil curse at that. And then when Harry asks what happened, it's like, all right, give me some actual <laughs> yeah, give details. Me, give, give me something. Yeah. Yeah. Haggard says, Well, some say he died. God's wallop, in my opinion. Nope. I reckon he's still out there. Still <gasps> too tired to carry on. But one thing's certain. Something about you stumped him that night. That's why you're famous. That's why everyone knows your name. You're the boy who lived. There it is, right there. You're the boy who lived. That is everything. The burden of expectations from that line is 
as heavy as if Hagrid literally climbed onto Harry's shoulders. You know, a day ago, literally a day ago, Harry had no friends, no sense of self, and no reason to hope. And now he knows that not only is he a wizard, but a terrifying villain tried to kill him, and Harry is the one, the only one who survived that lethal attempt. He is a legend in a world that he only just learned existed. He has gone from the crushing confines of his cupboard to the crushing weight of this perceived destiny, though, of course, choice versus destiny will be a defining theme of the story, in a snap. You know, think about how when Harry is in his cupboard, he is playing with a little toy knight. He is a Gryffindor already, but he's only now coming to understand what kind of bravery will be required of him. Everybody already believes that he's powerful and that he's mighty, and our guy doesn't even know how to get on the train, which— Weirdly, he's doing immediately because the time frame in the movie makes no sense. I gotta tell you, Hagrid, very uneven display from my guy early on. Tell him how to get to the platform. Also, don't just disappear. Be like, now I'm going to leave. But thank God <laughs> for the wonderful Mrs. Weasley. Molly Shouts Weasley. Mrs. Weasley. What a wonderful person. Hagrid, you failed to get our guy to <laughs> platform nine and three quarters. The train... Not just a vessel for getting Harry from point to point, right? From London to the Highlands to Hogwarts. It's a vessel for bringing Harry to magic, to the real magic that we can experience as people through this story. Friendship, love, companionship with other people. That's the core of what actual magic in a person's everyday life is, right? Yes. When Ron dirt on his nose. Did you know? (laughs) Enters Harry's compartment (laughs) and and the introductions play out. Ron is shocked, gasps to learn who Harry is. Is it true? <gasps> I mean, do you really have the the, the scar? Wicked! <laughs> Harry is known among all ages. He's a hero among Hogwarts students from all backgrounds, as we see when Hermione, who also knows who Harry is, and our expectations that Hermione is a brainiac, forms right away. She's already critiquing people. She's got more knowledge than everyone else on this train. Are you sure that's a real spell? Well, it's not very good, is it? I've only tried a few simple ones myself, but they've all worked for me. Ron, (laughs) on his 500th attempt to turn scabbers yellow, is like scabbers. And then... Hogwarts boats. Great intro. This is a great introduction to beautiful this mystical castle looming high upon a hill. A blonde-haired asshole named Draco Malfoy. It's true, then, what they're saying on the train. Harry Potter has come to Hogwarts. This is Crab and Goyle, and I'm Malfoy, Draco Malfoy. And when he says this, Ron kind of sniggers. Think my name's funny? Do you? No need to ask yours. Yeah. Red hair. And hand me down a robe. This is so mean, right? This is just savagely rude. You must be a Weasley. And then he says to Harry, you'll soon find that some wizarding families are better than others, Potter. You don't want to go making friends with the wrong sort. I can help you there. And he sticks out his hands as this ominous music kicks in. And already here, Harry is facing tests not of magical prowess, but of character. And he says, I think I could tell the wrong sort for myself, thanks. We know all we need to know about Draco from this moment, and we learn quite a bit about Harry, too. I love that that's essentially verbatim from the book as well. Now the sorting, a.k.a. the inspiration for Mal's Bridesmaid video, which one day we will play as a clip (laughs) on this very show. You have to see it, though. You have to really have to see it. The 10-second version is I dubbed over the sorting hat scene from Sorcerer's Stone, and instead of having the hat shout a house, it shouted Bridesmaid. Yes. It is the voice of her husband, Adam. And my sister was Draco Malfoy, which is extremely tough. I still feel bad about that one. (laughs) So the sorting is another test. And 
A more fundamental test, really the scariest kind of test at all, which is a test that you cannot prepare for. You know, there's no amount of studying that can prepare you for a test like this. The sorting hat is ostensibly going to take a person's measure existentially, their very essence. What's inside of you? What do you want? What do you want that you don't even know what you want? Does he even know enough to have an opinion about what he wants? One thing that's certain at this point, the Wizarding World is home to lots of groupthink, many cliques, and the anti-Slytherin rhetoric in this movie comes to us, not from Hagrid, but from Ron. There's no witch, no wizard who went bad who wasn't in Slytherin, he says. An interesting choice to come from a child, actually, right. because it speaks to, you know, how does, how does a child become bigoted from what they hear at home? The thinking is ingrained. Right. So that actually a very interesting choice here. Hermione and Ron have already been sorted into Gryffindor when Harry gets the call. His, his expectations are set. No, I don't want to be in Slytherin. He does not want to be. He wants to go to Gryffindor where immediately this, this person who's already his friend is going to be in. You want to be there. And so the hat says, but where to put you? No shit where to put you, hat. Of course, that's what your job is. <laughs> not Slytherin. Yes. Not Slytherin. Not Slytherin, eh? You sure? You could be great, you know. And of course, he's already heard that, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's all here in your head and Slytherin will help you on your way to greatness. There's no doubt about that. No? Well, if you're sure, better be Gryffindor. And McGonagall has already told the students that their house will be like their family when they're at school. And Harry now has his first forays into an actual family outside of the really poor blood relations that he's experienced at home. You're out, Dudley. Yeah. The welcome feast brings more than just the sorting. It also brings you a reminder. Helpful little note here from Dumbledore that yes. the dark forest is forbidden and also a very ominous Thank expectations you. raising warning that the third floor corridor is off limits. The dark forest. <laughs> Could it be bad in there? <laughs> yeah, don't go to the dark forest. <laughs> <laughs> and then there is the loaded look that Snape and Harry share. Harry, unaware that the proximate quarrel will actually prove to be the one who's causing this reaction in him, this pain in his scar, this sense of foreboding, thinks that the eye contact with Snape is what's causing these reactions. And this is the first moment when Harry starts to suspect that something's off. Something's off with Snape, a feeling that will morph into increasingly misguided certainty over the course of not only this book, but indeed no. almost the entire series. And it does not help <laughs> that Percy is there, ready to tell Harry oh, that Snape Percy. is not only the head of Slytherin, which Harry already hates, but also that he is unhappy serving as potions master and not so secretly lusts after Quarrel's post as defense against the dark arts professor. The prejudice continues to spread. Harry's expectations that Snape is someone to loathe growing. Harry's first potions lesson does nothing to dispel no. the already present expectation that Snape is ominous, certainly dark in aspect and perhaps in character, after a very controlled, very silky introductory speech that Love would it. surely net Snape a spot at your local poetry slam. Love it. Our hook-nosed brooder begins to openly pick on Harry. Annoyingly, it never occurs to movie Harry to note that he's just taking notes. Hey, I'm just... Uh, this bothers me yes. so much. He's Harry, like, just say, I'm I was writing down everything Yeah, I'm saying. actually paying attention to what <laughs> you're doing. I'm, I'm a not a good student. I can't stand that. Mr. Potter, uh, new celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> it's so acid, dripping with acid. There is real venom, real acid in this assessment, the kind that can only further set the expectation that Snape 
loathes Harry, hates him for whatever reason. Naturally, the movie does not explore Snape's history with James. I can get where they're coming from, even though I think it's the wrong choice. I just think that when you move to a visual medium, it's a lot harder to gauge what's a clue and what is this outright spoiler to the story. Though we could have gotten a couple lines that in essence say, oh yeah, he and your father hated each other when they were at school. Didn't you know? Right. That would have been something. Oh, you didn't know because they're dead. (laughs) Your father has been dead for many years. Uh, Snape grills Harry, ignores Hermione's emphatic, super emphatic, like incredibly emphatic hand raising, and then issues quite a savage rejoinder. Pity. Clearly fame isn't everything. Woof. Hard to blame Harry here for thinking that Snape can't stand him. He's making it obvious. He's letting him know. (laughs) Not super subtle. Fame might not be everything, but for Harry, quickly, flying is here. For the first time, Harry feels worthy of the hype, and it happens very, very fast. When Madame Hooch is off taking Neville to the hospital wing. Yes, this is— side note, it should be the fucking morgue. Neville, Neville <laughs> on his fall from the broom, is nearly impaled by, like, four <laughs> different architectural details of the castle. So off. He, he almost dies. Use magic to stop him from suffering any injuries or put him through all that, have him hit the ground, and then say, Neville's dead. The broken wrist is not the end result. <laughs> no, I mean, no. Malfoy is holding court. He's picking up the remember all, being a real dick, and Harry will not stand for it. He's a protector by nature. And what plays out really helps to train film viewers to expect that Harry is the kind of guy who's going to stand up for those who cannot stand up for himself. And Harry's broom jumps into his hand the second he shouts up. This happened before Madame Hooch had to leave. And then when he pursues Malfoy and the remember all, it is clear that he is at home on a broomstick yeah. in a way that is not common. This is not typical. Yeah, and chronic gambler Minerva McGallion <laughs> she's McGonagall. Just, she's just hearing the tinkling of galleons <laughs> as she looks at him. Spots him from her window and her decision <laughs> to introduce Harry to Oliver Wood and make him Gryffindor seeker rather than, you know, punishing him for defying very clearly stated school rules by riding his broom really reinforces that Harry's talent is something uncommonly rare. Ron says, you must be the youngest Quidditch player in, and Harry cuts in, a century, according to McGallion. Yeah, McGallion. <laughs> <laughs> when... Harry expresses, you know, he goes quickly from that boast to expressing some fear that he won't be able to live up to this position that he's earned. And Hermione offers some reassuring and illuminating intel. You won't make a fool of yourself. It's in your blood. And then she shows him James's Quidditch plaque. A little bit more on that plaque later on, folks. Ron says, whoa, Harry, you never told me your father was a seeker, too. Again, stay tuned for more on that. I didn't know. Harry says he didn't know. And again, how could he? Everything that he learns is new to him, and every new bit of information helps him form a new expectation. And our heroes wind up in a off-limits corridor. Harry's already wondering if something strange is afoot in the wizarding world, something maybe that nobody's been talking about, because he saw in the Daily Prophet that someone had attempted to rob Gringotts, which Hagrid had told him was only the second most no, the safest place. place. <laughs> second safest place in the Wizarding World. And by the way, he almost saw a student impaled today. Uh, specifically, the vault he and Hagrid emptied during their trip. Now he, Ron, and Hermione have come face to face with this gigantic three-headed dog. And as Hermione is quick to note, it's not just hanging out. It was standing on a trap door, which means it wasn't there by accident. It's guarding something. Now, if you two don't mind... I'm going to go to bed before either of you come up with another clever plan to get us killed or worse, expelled. Love that. 
notable that the fate worse than death for Hermione would be expulsion. Ron. She needs to sort out her priorities, yes. Clearly. And meanwhile, Ron needs to sort out his manners because after the Leviosa, Leviosa, Leviosa moment that launched a thousand memes, Hermione overhears Ron mocking her and her lack of friends. And then we get Quirrell's trail. Oh my God. <laughs> the Dungeons proclamation. And Harry and Ron realize, uh-oh, Hermione, who Neville had revealed has been crying in the bathroom all day, does, <laughs> doesn't know about the danger. So they go to her rescue. And when McGonagall, Snape, and Quirrell arrive, Hermione defies all expectation by taking the blame. Quick side note here. Harry, for reasons that will forever remain a mystery, wipes the troll bogeys off on his robes instead of on the troll. Yeah, come on, guy. Can't stand that. This lie of Hermione's is unnecessary, but also it is crucial because it is friendship sealing. This is a moment that helps Harry, Ron, and Hermione believe, come to understand and believe, that they can all expect the other to be there for them, to come to their aid in a moment of need. And amid that... Heartwarming camaraderie. Harry notices Snape's mangled leg and his suspicions yes. grow. Snape, yes. Harry believes, tried to get past the three-headed dog while everyone else was preoccupied. And when Harry later notices that Snape is limping in a really amusing scene where Snape is just openly taunting Harry ahead of his <laughs> yeah, first right. Quidditch match, he shares this belief with Ron and Hermione. The dog is guarding whatever Hagrid removed from Gringotts and Snape is trying to steal it. Hey, back to Quidditch. McGallion, McGonagall, who recently gave... What we would consider an indefensively small amount of points to Ron and Harry for defeating a fucking troll <laughs> continues her streak of impartiality by buying Harry a Nimbus 2000. Let me just say this about the small amount of points for the troll defeat. I think that that is actually cover. That's the long con. <laughs> you know, you don't set a kid up to being the youngest seeker in a century and then go out and buy him a broom. Without being like, you need to have something in there where you go, what, what do you mean? I only gave him a couple points for right. uh, risking his life and limb to defeat a troll and in the bathroom. She's, of course, she's going to take a bunch away very what, soon. Yeah, what do, you, what do you mean? Me? What? Hedwig delivers it to Harry in the Great Hall, leading to one of the film's most hilarious moments. Hmm. I wonder what it could be. <laughs> it's shaped like a broom. It's shaped like a broom. <laughs> it's not, you know. Uh, well, one thing the broomstick isn't, Immune to jinxes, immune to dark magic. Because shortly into his first match, Harry is thrown off of it and hanging by his hands for dear life. Good thing he spread his Snape prejudice to Ron and Hermione because they see what's happening. They look out across the stadium to try and figure out what's going on. Boom, Hermione sees Snape muttering under his breath, eyes locked on Harry. And aha, here is our guy. Smart positioning and framing in the scene because Quirrell is always right there, right behind him, where he needs to be once we learn what is actually occurring. Right. And after Harry's mouth grab, when Harry, Ron, and Hermione share their suspicions with Hagrid, who promptly, promptly reveals that, oh, Fluffy, <laughs> that one, the dog's name is Fluffy, and two, they shouldn't be meddling because whatever's going on is very dangerous. And also, Fluffy is guarding a thing that's strictly between Dumbledore and Nicholas Flamel. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, Hagrid, my Hagrid, my dear Hagrid, my dear, dear Hagrid. Christmas has arrived, and Harry, of course, has no reason to expect presents. He has only known neglect in his life, never love. But a joyous surprise awaits on Christmas morning, the invisibility cloak. Oh, wow. Harry, reading the note. Your father left this in my possession before he died. It is time it was returned to you. Use it well. And Ron is exclaiming. Whoa! 
Ron's comment about how rare these cloaks are is very key because we can expect right away that this is a special magical tool. Harry and company expect to find out who Flamel is because they're not accustomed to quitting on a quest. Since they've entered the wizarding world, it's not like they've learned disappointments. And so Harry uses the cloak to go immediately to the restricted section. And when thing goes awry and he has to flee, what does he see but Snape cornering Quirrell and really unambiguously threatening him about what we do not know? We'll have another little chat soon when you've had time to decide where your loyalties lie. Nothing suspicious about that at all. People talk (laughs) to their colleagues like that all the time in the middle of the night. He fully expects to discover at this point that Snape is the villain. So do we, by the way. And it's confirmation bias, right? The dark clothing, the lank hair, the dickish attitude. Harry's attempt to escape detection leads him into the room containing, aha, the mirror of Erised. He looks in and sees his parents. Very old, by the way. We should mention. James especially. Uh, looking, unreasonably old. Looking like 46. Harry's parents, <laughs> they died when they were 21 years old. Yeah. His dad it looks like he's about to say, hey, uh, why is the door open? We're letting all the air conditioning out. <laughs> Harry's longing is palpable. He never expected to see his family. And there they are. And seemingly alive. He gets Ron. Of course, Ron's vision is totally different. That's me. Only I'm head boy. And I'm holding the Quidditch cup. And bloody hell, I'm Quidditch captain too. How do you think this mirror shows the future? And of course, how can it? How can it? Because both my parents are dead. Oh, Ron. When Harry returns alone, Dumbledore's there and says, back again, Harry? I see that you, like so many before you, have discovered the delights of the mirror of Erised. Mm. I trust by now you realize what it does. Of course not. Dumbledore continues, let me give you a clue. The happiest man on earth would look into the mirror and see only himself exactly as he is. And so Harry asks if the mirror shows us whatever we want. And Dumbledore says, yes and no. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desires of our hearts. Now you, who have never known your family, see them standing beside you. Remember this, Harry. The mirror gives us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away in front of it, even gone mad. That is why tomorrow it'll be moved to a new home, and I must ask you not to go looking for it again. It does not do to dwell on dreams, Harry, and forget to live. This is a foundational moment in this story and in the entire series. The inscription on the mirror, when you read it in reverse, it says, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. And... This is Harry's heart's desire, having a family, being with people who love him. And pulling himself away from the only glimpse of his family that he's ever known requires exceptional strength and fortitude from him. And Dumbledore's message is a powerfully sad one, but it is also at the same time a hopeful one because he is in essence saying, don't let desire and misguided expectation define your life. Go out and make your life on your own. Now, we did not get our chocolate frog card from the beginning of the movie. That got cut. Cutting room floor with that one. So the Flamel reveal comes courtesy of our book nerd, Hermione, who issues her iconic, I checked this out weeks ago for a bit of light reading. And honestly, don't you two read? (laughs) Incredible lines that reveal so much about her character. And she tells them that Flamel is the only known maker of the Sorcerer's Stone, legendary substance that produces the elixir of life, which makes the drinker immortal. Aha! That is what Fluffy is guarding. To what end? We don't know yet. Our hero is now fully expecting Snape to make a move on the stone, go to Hagrid with what they know. And Hagrid is confused by how they've gotten this information. And 
their Snape-centric hate. He tells them that Snape is one of the teachers who's helping to protect the stone. And they are very briefly distracted. Norbert, a footnote in this movie. (laughs) From their Snape obsession by Norbert's birth. Norbert, the Norwegian Ridgeback Dragon, by Malfoy's spying and by their ensuing point robbery. I mean, again, these guys got five points apiece for taking down a troll and they, as a group here, lose 150 for being out of bed at night. That is sheer madness. The long con from Megalion, perhaps? Maybe so. Still, madness. And then they land detention. And their trip into the forest is not just cause for us to hear Filch bemoan how he misses the screaming. <laughs> the screaming! <laughs> the old punishments used to bring. It is cause for us and Harry to get a better sense of what is really at play here, what is really at stake. There is this subtle moment when Hermione, who is trying to soothe Hagrid, their chaperone into the forest, about Norbert going off to live in a colony, says... Well, that's good, isn't it? He'll be with his own kind. We can think about Harry that way, too. He is finally with his own kind. And yes, in many ways, it's as good as good can be. He is a wizard. He is surrounded by magical people. He is where he belongs. Finally, he has a sense of self and purpose and identity. But there's also a cost to that, to finally being where he belongs. Every additional glimpse of the wizarding world pulls back another layer of Harry's destiny onion. And when he goes into the forest, he reaches the center. He glimpses the center, at least. Voldemort. The centaur friends who saves Harry from uh, who we will come to learn is Voldyquirrel as the hooded figures drinking the blood out of the side of the unicorn and then literally flies away. Like, this is a real what-the-fuck moment, especially because in Deathly Hallows, the book, Voldemort learning how to fly is, like, a massive moment of shock and horror for other people in the world who are like, oh, my God, the extent of his power is incomprehensible. He can fly. And here in Sorcerer's Stone, he just flies away. Ridiculous. Anyway, Centaur tells Harry that he is facing an enemy willing to pay a terrible price, says, for you have slain something so pure that from the moment the blood touches your lips, you will have a half-life, a cursed life. This is only going to raise Harry's expectation for the nature of the threat and the horror that awaits him. Who would be willing to do that? He tells Harry that the forest is not safe, especially for him. Now, for reasons that make no sense, he tells Harry that he's now safe. We're You're safe one now. We're one-two punch there. Yeah. The forest is not safe for you. But by the way, you You're are safe You're fine. <laughs> Something's been killing unicorns. We didn't catch it. But you're fine. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, like Harry's interpretation of this is clear. Since he entered this world, Harry's been faced with what other people expect of him. The fact that everyone knows him, that they know him better than he knows his own biography. And now he's forging his own expectations for what awaits him. Voldemort's return. Hermione offers up a statement that will continue to fuel the essential and misguided expectation that Dumbledore is an all-powerful protector. Hang on a minute. We're forgetting one thing. Who's the one wizard Voldemort always feared? Dumbledore. As long as Dumbledore's around, you're safe. As long as Dumbledore's around, you can't be touched. Ah, but Harry can't shake the pain in his scar or the foreboding in his heart. And also, where the fuck was Dumbledore just now? Just now. Just in this very moment, where was he? When he pieces together that Hagrid got Norbert's egg in exchange for information unwittingly given, even about how to get past Fluffy and then proceeds to get this information for himself, he knows it's not a theory. This is happening. This is a fact. He's still wrong about the focus, the actual cat's paw behind this, but he knows who's moving the chess piece. It's Voldemort, and he knows it's happening tonight, and it's time to ask for help. This is beyond their powers. 
But Dumbledore's out of town. Had to go to the ministry because there's definitely no other way to answer a magical summons than by fleeing when your school is under threat. There's not other ways to travel that would get you there. Flu network. Send a Patronus. Yeah. Literally any of those things. Port key. Yeah, anyways, there's a lot of ways to go. Flavia broom. Yeah. That's quick. Take the train. Like Hagrid. (laughs) After McGonagall hand waves the kids and Snape issues a hilariously suspect. You want to be careful. People think you're up to something. (laughs) Our trio decides to head down to beat Snape to the stone themselves. They jinx poor Neville. A little more on Neville in a minute here. Tough stuff. And when they reach Fluffy, he's already asleep. One of the film's very predictable but unnecessary bit of movie hijinks involving some sort of physical threat or humor. In this case, a massive blob of dog drool and near-miss escape. And we get to the other enchantments that are protecting the stone. They finally reveal themselves. Book readers lament. You don't get your troll. And most distressingly, we do not get Snape's potions riddle. That sucks. It really sucks. I'm sad that we don't get that. But we do get to see Sprout's Devil Snare, Flitwick's Charmed Keys, and McGonagall's Transfigured Chessboard. And every task really reinforces something that we've come to expect from our characters. That Hermione will be cool under pressure, that Ron will stick by his friends, but we also get to learn so much more about these kids and how they a murderer. <laughs> exactly. Ron's Gryffindor incarnate moment arrives when he decides to serve as the literal knight on the chessboard and willingly introduces a theme that will be key for Harry and the series alike, sacrifice. Ron gives himself up. We get this really just delightfully amusing, no, you can't, there must be another way, line reading from Hermione. And Ron lays it out. Do you guys want to stop Snape or not? Sometimes you have to make a sacrifice. This is what the characters and the viewers are starting to learn. And this moment, this choice, it teaches us to expect that Ron and Hermione and Harry will always be willing at the end of the day, no matter how hard it is, to sacrifice themselves for each other and for the greater good. Hi, Grindy, how you doing? And also that... As comforting and imperative as it is to always have his friends around him, Harry really has to be the one. He has to be the one to fight the battle in the end. Harry says, Ron's right. I have to go on. What makes a good story? Listen, the structure of a story has not changed in maybe millennia. A hero is called to a mission and goes and accomplishes that mission after many obstacles. What makes a good story is a subversion of expectations. Harry gets to the final chamber alone. We think it's going to be Snape. He thinks it's going to be Snape. Only it's Quirrell. Harry says, you, no, it can't be. Snape, he was the one. Yes, he does seem the type, doesn't he? The homie is literally saying, yes, he's one of the people you would expect. You expected it to be him because of the dark clothing and the way he comports himself. In reality, as Quirrell helpfully clarifies, laying out the entire affair, Snape was trying to save Harry. Snape was trying to stop Quirrell from getting plus fluffy. This isn't just an info dump. It's important. The stone is on the line and Harry finds himself in possession of it when, after looking in the mirror of Erised, he sees himself holding it, then feels it drop into his pocket. Dumbledore will later clarify that Harry was able to get the stone because he wanted it, but had no designs or desire to use it. Quirrell looks into the mirror and sees himself holding the stone, but never got it because his intentions driven by, at once, fear to, you know, please his master and fear about what would happen if he doesn't, and also the desire, the glory to do so, cannot gain the stone because his intentions are not pure. The seeker's expectation for how to use the stone for self-gain, for protection, wound up being the decisive factor. And Dumbledore would say later, that is one of my more brilliant ideas. And between you and me, 
that is something that Dumbledore, man, what a Way flex by my guy. <laughs> Magic isn't just about flashy wand movements. It's about our intentions. And we'll learn this much later when we start learning about the unforgivable curses. Yes. And Voldemort's expectations are crystal clear. Regain a body, return to power, bend others to his will. And he tries to bend Harry right then and there. Don't, Don't be a be fool. fool. Why suffer horrific death when you could join me Never! Bravery. Your parents had it too. Tell me, Harry, would you like to see your mother and father again? They pop up in the yeah. mirror of their faces. Together we can bring them back. All I ask is for something in return. The so stone, I, of course. So I no longer have to be on the back of Quirrell's head watching him shit. Can you imagine, like, you're the <laughs> Dark intimate. Lord. You're facing backwards on Quirrell. Every time he lays down, your face is in the pillow. You gotta watch this guy take a dump. Great moment in the books where Fred and George are bewitching yes. snowballs to bounce against the back of Quirrell's turban. And of course, you realize at the end that they're just <laughs> felt Absolutely. The, the disrespect shown to the Dark Lord in that moment. That's it, Harry. There's no good and evil. There's only power. And those two weak to seek it together will do extraordinary things. Just give me the stone. And as Harry's parents' faces fade from the mirror, he shouts, Liar! And then he tries to run. Harry knows enough to expect treachery and deceit. He knows also because of his earlier discussion with Dumbledore, that magic isn't a cure-all that can or should grant our every wish. That's, of course, this is part of the central message of this. That way lies madness and soul-corrupting evil. Do not seek to use magic to disrupt or in some way sneak past what is essentially the path of a life. Harry fights trying to pry Curl's hands off his neck and is what is actually a shocking scene. When Curl is pinning him to the steps... Hand on his neck. You can see him really gripping Daniel Radcliffe's throat. And when he sees Quirrell's flesh crumbling away. Literally. So there's no ambiguity about what will happen if he touches him else. Here's Quirrell's shriek. What is this magic? And he then murders him. Grabs his face. Melts his face. So that his entire person turns to dust. Kind of a weird Got choice. Got to note, if anyone listening has not read the books, it does not happen this way. It's that there's like blisters and pain and clearly Harry's touch is not something that Quirrell can abide, but he's not he's not ceasing to exist when Harry touches him. So Harry is, it's a defense right. mechanism to try to cause enough pain to stay alive. Quirrell later dies, but Harry doesn't he's make He's unconscious. Him, he's also unconscious Harry at the time. Harry doesn't when turn him into dust. Right. It's, not the, it's not the essence of the Dark Lord flying through him that causes him to pass out. It's the fact that he's in a life and death struggle. He's an 11-year-old boy and someone's strangling him to death. When... Dumbledore and Harry debrief in the hospital wing. Harry asks if now that the stone has been destroyed, Voldemort will be unable to return. And Dumbledore really shatters this illusion before it can take hold. He says, I'm afraid there are ways in which he can return. And then he goes on to ask Harry if he understands why Professor Quirrell couldn't bear to touch him and says, it was because of your mother. She sacrificed herself for you and that kind of act leaves a mark. And then when Harry touches, goes to touch the scar on his head, Dumbledore says, oh no, this kind of mark cannot be seen. It lives in your very skin. And he clarifies that it is love, the power of Harry's mother's sacrifice. And ultimately, this movie, this film adaptation, provides very little in the way of big picture endgame clarity in terms of really everything. But <laughs> we learn enough, just enough, to expect that Voldemort will again try to rise and also to expect that the themes of love and sacrifice and choice will define so much of what is to come. And when Dumbledore cooks the books at the farewell feast and awards Gryffindor the house cup, and then Hagrid gives Harry the 
really beautiful, tear-inducing family photo album, and our darling little kiddos board the train to leave, Hermione says, it feels strange to be going home, doesn't it? And Harry answers the only way that we would expect him to at this point. I'm not going home, not really. Hogwarts is home for him now. What will come will come. And when it does, our brave little bubby will be ready to face it. Jason? Yeah. I'm Ron, by the way, Ron Weasley. I'm Harry, Harry Potter. So, so it's true. I mean, do you really have the, the... The what? The scar. Oh, yeah. Wicked. Film Harry may not have the book character signature green eyes, but he has the lightning bolt scar and the messy black hair and even his knobbly little knees. For legions of fans, Daniel Radcliffe is Harry Potter, the only Harry that they know, a boy who had to carry the weight of a multi-billion dollar franchise on his tiny 11-year-old shoulders. So, Headmaster... Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us everything we need to know about how the cast was discovered. In 2000, the official website for the Sorcerer's Stone movie carried the following message. We are looking for British children between the ages of 9 and 11 who look like Harry Potter, Ron Weasley, or Hermione Granger. You can become a junior talent scout by urging them to send a recent picture and videotape to us. On the tape, we would like potential Harrys, Rons, and Hermiones to say their name and age, tell a joke, and read a paragraph of their choice from any of the Harry Potter books. Be sure to include a phone number and address. God, that's crucial. Please send tapes and photographs to Harry Potter Casting, P.O. Box. 7788 Burbank, California, 915107788. The runaway success of J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books allowed her the leverage to demand a really unusual amount of creative control over the films adapted from her works. One of the ways she exercised her power was to ensure that the cast would be British. Quote, it's essential to find a British boy to play Harry, Chris Columbus, a director of the first two HP films, said during Sorcerer's Stone's pre-production. We really have to be incredibly faithful and true to the book. Rowling wrote Harry as a British boy. It's important that we honor the original vision. The search for these characters was extensive and arduous, involving thousands of youngsters. I saw a number that said 40,000 people were looked at. Casting director Susie Figgis left the production in exasperation after not being able to find the characters. Quote, she said, I feel I have done my absolute best to find a child, and during our search, we've met some great kids. Ultimately, it's the director's point of view and vision, she told the Daily Mail at the time. Finally, though, The production found it's Harry, it's Ron, and it's Hermione in the form of Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grint, and Emma Watson, respectively. How were they discovered? The Who Found Harry part of our tale is slightly muddled and almost Rashomonic in the way that several people have several points of view on this. Chris Columbus says he spied Radcliffe in a BBC production of David Copperfield, also starring Maggie Smith, a.k.a. Professor McGallion. Producer David Heyman says it was he who discovered Radcliffe when he saw the boy and his parents at the theater, whatever the case. Actually getting the kid into the casting process was tricky. Radcliffe's parents were hesitant about acting as a profession in general. When they learned that being Harry Potter would require Daniel to live in Los Angeles for long periods of time, they balked. (laughs) Eventually, Warner Brothers, not just because of Radcliffe, but because of overall the difficulties in finding a child and finding parents who willing to cede to the shooting schedule, eventually Warner Brothers reduced the initial number of films their star would be required to appear in and agreed to shoot in England. The Radcliffe's then allowed Daniel to audition and the rest is history. Rupert Grint's path, much more straightforward. <laughs> he won a Ron Weasley lookalike contest sponsored by a newspaper like a year before production started. And when Grint saw open auditions were taking place, he sent a video of himself rapping why he should be cast as Ron, the producer. 
had that wrong reason. Boom. What a legend. As part of the search, this gives you an idea of how extensive the search was, how, how really fine-tooth comb it was. The production sent casting directors to schools, schools across England. They just sent someone to school and be like, hey, does anybody here look like Harry Potter, Ron, or Hermione? <laughs> Quote, and this is Emma Watson speaking to EW. Some people came around to my school in Oxfordshire saying, do you have anyone who would like to audition? This is wild stuff. Amazing. So I had an audition at my school. I think I ended up doing like definitely over five auditions. My dad told me, you know, you do realize there are going to be like a thousand girls. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, I'll keep that in mind. I tried to enjoy it instead of desperately trying for it. Ah, but she got it. What did she think of her plucky alter ego? Quote, she's got some really good lines. One of them is, I'm going to bed before either of you come up with another clever idea to get us killed or worse expelled. I like her because she's really bossy and nerdy and all that kind of stuff. It makes her funny, even though she doesn't realize it. Ah, uh, what so a cast. charming. So charming. So serendipitous. It really was. Wonderful. Jason? Yes. Please do not panic. Prefects will lead their houses back to the dormitories and teachers will follow me to the dungeons. Or we'll split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations and little trivia nuggets from the film. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one, here is just for each of us, the one book to movie omission that we absolutely cannot shake. And just again, A lot of choices. These are just one inch that we can't shake. For me, it is the absence of the essential, iconic Dumbledore book line to the well-organized mind, Death is But the Next Great Adventure, which says really everything about the series' values and about J.K.R.'s view on the importance of sacrifice and choice. What about you? The potion's obstacle. On the one hand, I, I get the desire to streamline the climax, keep the pace and the suspense high. On the other hand, like... Typical man always looking to streamline the climax. (laughs) Listen, on the other hand, (laughs) as a piece of writing, I think it's fantastic. First of all, because of the riddle. Danger lies before you while safety lies behind. Two of us will help you, whichever you would find, and on and on and on. The fact that J.K. had, one, created the test, and two, wrote this riddle that actually has to follow the rules of, one, a rhyming riddle, and two, actually have the clues of how to solve the riddle within it, is just great writing. It's really amazing, and it's that's hard to do, and I really missed it. I'm with you. Number two, let's settle this debate. Was James a seeker or a chaser? Mm. If you want to sense how long and fiercely this debate has raged, just Google it. This comes down to the film choosing to put seeker on the plaque. Many have longed to look to the snitch James carries around with him in the Order chapters, Snape's worst memory, as, as book evidence that James played seeker, but JKR has confirmed in interviews that our guy was a chaser. I like that because it's connective tissue between Harry and his dad, but they're each their own person. Right. I mean, it's like it's like having a ball, you know, because I have a basketball. It doesn't tell you actually what position I play. It just tells you that I'm involved in the sport. It's better that they have Quidditch as a bond, but each got to play their own position. Number three, when Harry and Ron arrive late for their first transfiguration lesson, they briefly think that they've beaten McGonagall there. But then she transforms from a cat into a person. And Ron says, that was bloody brilliant. And McGonagall says, thank you for that assessment, Mr. Weasley. Maybe if I were to transfigure Mr. Potter and yourself into a pocket watch. Then one of you might be on time. And, you know, they come to their own defense by saying, we got lost. And then she says, then perhaps a map. 
I trust you don't need one to find your seats. This is just a really fun little thing. And again, Prisoner of Azkaban, the book, was out by the time they made this movie. Like, the Marauder's Map was a thing. So thinking about that line, then perhaps a map, is just delightful in light of how big of a role the Marauder's Map will come to play in Harry and Ron and Hermione's life just two books later. Number four, Rowling reportedly handpicked Alan Rickman to play Severus Snape and shared, at that time, unpublished details about Snape's arc in order for Rickman to be able to calibrate his really nuanced performance. That is really fascinating. Number five, you guys know that Harry Potter's supposed to have green eyes, right? You've seen these movies. Does Daniel Radcliffe have green eyes in these movies? Daenerys Targaryen is supposed to have purple eyes. (laughs) So Daniel Radcliffe initially wore green contacts, and Emma Watson initially wore fake large teeth, but Daniel Radcliffe's (laughs) eyes became (laughs) too irritated, and Watson just basically just struggled to speak clearly while wearing these fake teeth, reportedly. And so the filmmakers decided, ultimately, to choose comfort over letter of the law canon and ditch those two iconic physical characteristics. Number six, they filmed at least one scene with Peeves, but then cut him. Ah. And then subsequently ignored my guy, the Peevester, in every other movie, which is a travesty. Rip Peeves. Oh, Potter, you rotter. <laughs> Peeves is really a wordsmith. Number seven, just some quick real talk here. This movie is a travesty for the Neville heads out there. Where is our dude? Tough luck for Neville. He gets no shine. First of all, the Midnight Duel is cut out of the movie, so he doesn't get to participate in that whole escapade and then the fluffy discovery, and he is also not present on the Forbidden Forest trip. Just not nearly enough Neville. I have heard movie-only viewers who have never read the books say, like, seems weird that Neville gets to pull the sword and kill the snake at the end, and it's such an offensive thing to hear, but then if you think just about Neville's arc in the movies— they don't get to really see that the almost chosen one should have been more central the whole time. It was a coin flip, 50-50, who was going to be the chosen one. Mal, that was one of my more brilliant dodges, (laughs) and between you and me, that is saying something. Gunk, gunk, gunk. Today's champion also had a brilliant idea to secure the rights to Harry Potter. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature who compels us the most. Today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers got into a brand new IP at the ground floor and was able to build it into what it is now. To date, our first four films have made $3.5 billion worldwide. All eight films have made $7.7 billion combined. The entire franchise, uh, as of last June, movie sales, book sales, DVD, digital sales, rentals, toy sales, everything, an estimated franchise worth of $25 billion? And, of course, they are still going. They're still making these movies. The eighth movie came out in 2011. Did they wrap up and say, no more galleons, please? We're content here. No, they did not. They locked in the Fantastic Beasts franchise, the first film of which dropped in 2016 and has grossed a reported north of $800 million worldwide. And then the second film, which is coming this November, is the next installment and what is going to ultimately be a five-part film franchise. This is really one of the new poster models for how to continue the expanded universe storytelling. They got in cheap. They have made a ton of money. They have given JKR a really respectably large amount of creative control and ownership over her product, but they are also in possession of one of the most valuable pieces of IP literally in the known universe. It's incredible. Well, friends, you're a little scary sometimes. You know that? Brilliant, but scary. Talking about you, Isaac Lee and Zach Cram. We couldn't do this podcast without you, but you're a little scary. 
We hope that you had as much fun as we did this week discussing Sorcerer's Stone, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again next Monday, June 18th, when we will be diving deep. Deep. Into the wondrous and at times baffling world of Quidditch. At times. When you, listen, the scoring system is strange, but that's fine. It is. Is it fine? We'll talk about that. We'll discuss whether it's fine. Shouts to (laughs) to Victor Crumb catching the snitch for no apparent reason, but it's okay. Listen, he wanted to end it on his own terms. That's right. (laughs) And then please join us again the Monday after that, June 25th, when we will be beginning our week-long dive into Chamber of Secrets. Until next week, remember, the wand chooses the podcast, Mr. Potter. It is not always clear why. I can create outlines 20, 30 pages long. (laughs) I can read scripts, create a podcast, all by drinking this potion, which I call coffee. Simply drinking five or six of these large cups in an hour will give you the energy to finish the project. Mr. Potter.